scorned by the task force, Detective Corey Williams sits in his Livonia police office, burned out, drained from the case, really thought he was so close. I mean, maybe, you know, we felt that too, listening to the recountings and the stories and the things that happened. This guy, when the police wouldn't put all in, he was all in on this case. And he was so close, he didn't get there. And then, on top of it all, he got shunned by the task force. So you can imagine how he's feeling, but it all takes a turn when his phone rings one day. And the voice on the other end says, Do you have some time? I have a long story to tell you. And it's going to blow you away. Later in that conversation, the person on the other end of the phone also says, They'll give him the information, but he can't go to the Michigan State Police. I'm Eddie White. This is the Forever Children of Oakland County, and today we're going to start unearthing it all. Who really could have been the Oakland County child killer? And an answer to the question, could the police have caught him all those years ago? Patrick Coffey is a family friend of the King's, and he's a young boy in 1977. He's devastated when his friend Tim King is brutally murdered, and this case affects him so much that he grows up to become a polygrapher. He's speaking at a polygraph conference in Las Vegas in the mid-2000s. After his presentation is over, a man named Larry Wasser comes up to him and asks him about speaking in Michigan because he loved his presentation that much. Patrick says, hey, no fee. It would be a homecoming for me of sorts. I was actually so affected my friend got killed by the Oakland County child killer back in the day, and I decided to become a polygrapher. To which this man, this polygrapher, replies, I know who killed your neighbor boy. Patrick's blood runs cold, but he's excited. He wants to know more information. The long and short of it is, Wasser eventually kind of clams up because this could be a breach of attorney-client privilege. You see... At the time, defense attorneys would employ polygraphers and give polygraphs to their clients to use in their defense. But what Patrick Coffey does get out of Wasser before he kind of realizes his mistake is that both the person that Wasser interviewed and that person's lawyer are now deceased. Now, before getting on with it here, if you're thinking that this is just such a weird coincidence and sort of divine intervention, that's what Patrick Coffey says even to this day. He says... Uh, there's a quote here in the snow killings. What are the odds out of 300 million people that I would be the recipient of this information? And that Larry Wasser, for whatever reason, whether it be he was unburdening his soul or merely trying to impress me, gave me those variables. The attorney is dead and the suspect is dead. It was chilling to me. I will tell you now that every prayer I ever said for Timmy, every thought ever pondered on his behalf, was answered in that moment. Doesn't that just give you chills? It's, it is. It, I mean, it kind of feels like something like divine intervention. Him of all people in this time, in this place, this might be something big. So he gets back to his room and he calls his friends, the kings, who he hasn't spoken to in some time, and they decide, man, what do we do with this lead? Michigan State Police, they've lost all faith in the Michigan State Police due to their handling of this investigation. We'll find out even more things that they did. But from their view, whether it was Gary Gray, whether it was the organization itself, they've really mishandled things. They've really messed up some things. And so they don't want to go to the Michigan State Police. But they do know that Corey Williams has been working this case doggedly. And so they decide to give him a call. 
but they don't want him going to the Michigan State Police because, as they say in various things that they're quoted in, if it goes to them, it's going to die a slow death. Whereas maybe if it goes to someone like Corey Williams, this thing won't actually go to fruition. So they get Corey on the phone. She relays this story. She tells him the information. And Corey Williams gets right to work investigating this case, even though he's kind of supposed to, you know, not really do that. But for now, he's laying low and not telling the Michigan State Police about this new lead. This whole story could be a little mini-series in itself. We've got Corey Williams moving fast and issues a subpoena on Wasser. Wasser doesn't really divulge much information. However, he does, uh, when Williams kind of presses and says, well, the guy's attorney and the guy is dead, right? Wasser says, I guess you guys know everything, but doesn't divulge any more information. Now, this whole thing is kind of a made-for-TV drama in itself, getting the name out of Wasser, because he claims up and says, look, I'm not, I'm not going to reveal it. Wayne County presses charges to force him to reveal the name, and he loses again, again, and again, but he appeals it all the way up to the Michigan State Court of Appeals, and they say, dude, you gotta reveal the name. I mean, it's, it's got all elements of drama here. We've got court proceedings, we've got cops trying to figure out what's going on, we've got Larry Wasser and his reputation pinned in a corner, and we've also got Patrick Coffey and Wasser sitting in the same waiting room at one point in time, just kind of staring knives through each other. Now, he doesn't actually end up revealing the name. He still claims forgetfulness, but he does give them the name of the attorney. Uh, he does give them the name of the polygrapher who did the polygraph. He remembers that, but somehow he doesn't remember the name of the suspect himself. Questionable, I think. But this ultimately leads to Corey Williams and Gary Gray from Michigan State Police ultimately finding the name in the polygrapher's polygraphs that he did. Wasser says that he thinks that the guy did it, because this guy, Ralph Cabot, polygrapher at Michigan State Police, had questionable accuracy on his polygraphs. I guess this was somehow well-known. So they go through his polygraphs, and they find the name that they're looking for, Christopher Bush. Now, we heard about Sheldon before. If there was a royal family in Michigan, Sheldon might as well have been a part of it. But if there's just a filthy, rich, wealthy, corporate-connected family in Michigan, Chris Bush might as well be a part of that. His father, H. Lee Bush, is an extremely high-up executive at GM. Now, GM at the time is huge. I mean, larger-than-life type company. We're talking Silicon Valley-type wealth. Let's listen to Jay Rubin Appleman talk a little bit about it. It's like saying he had that position at, 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 at Microsoft. Right, or Google or, or something. Yeah, it's like saying, it's like saying the, the head of finance for Google, it was his son. You know, it's like saying right. that. So it's like... To give context, the power and the money that General Motors had in the 70s, it was, you know, among our biggest industries, that and big oil, but and big tobacco. But but um, it was his kid, man. Chris Bush had every opportunity afforded to him in life. He went to one of the most expensive boarding schools in all of Europe, in Switzerland. I mean, any opportunity that could be afforded to a person, Chris Bush certainly had it. Despite this, it didn't keep Christopher Bush out of trouble with the law. By the time of the Oakland County child killings, Christopher Bush is known to the police being arrested for child pornography, suspiciously a kind of a one-liner in the same article that talks about the big child porn bust on North Fox Island. He's also charged with what they call at the time criminal sexual conduct, which essentially just means rape of various types, with minors, and with boys. According to the Snow Killings, 
Quote, police records revealed Christopher Bush had racked up several felony criminal sexual conduct charges with minors, four offenses in a seven-month period from January 1976 to July 1976 in four counties, Genesee, Oakland, Montmorency, and Midland. All four charges were brought by two victims, both of whom grew up in Flint. One was 13 when he was sexually assaulted by Bush. The other was 14. And I think it's important to just kind of paint a picture of who Bush is. Quote, In his arrest records, Bush was described as having a husky build, 5 foot 8 inches tall, and weighing 260 pounds. With dark, stringy, shoulder-length hair and a full beard, Bush looked more like Grizzly Adams than the scion of a well-to-do, powerful auto executive. When police arrest Christopher Bush at the restaurant his parents had purchased for him in Alma, Michigan, uh, for these criminal sexual conduct charges, they think that perhaps they've got their Oakland County child killer perhaps as well. When they're driving him to Flint so he can be booked from Alma, well, which is not in the area, they ask if he, they can search his home, to which Bush says, yeah, I've got nothing to hide, feel free to search the home. Well, that's one of the dumbest things perhaps I've ever heard, because what police find in the home you think you would certainly want to hide. So uh, I'm going to quote here again from the snow killings and an excellent account of really many things with Christopher Bush here. So, quote, In one bedroom, they found two shotguns, one 16-gauge, the other 20-gauge. So Jill Robinson, if you remember, was shot, end quote there. Jill Robinson, if you remember, was shot with a shotgun, but she was shot with a 12-gauge, so that doesn't match up here. So anyway, quoting again from the snow killings, quote, in another bedroom, they found one pound of marijuana, a suitcase with ropes inside, some black pieces of plastic, and a ski lift pass from Seenboat Springs. So Seenboat is spelled wrong. That, that could possibly be Steamboat in Colorado, I'm thinking. In the basement, they found another suitcase full of child pornography magazines and films, including 8 to 10 8 millimeter homemade movies of children having sex in a tent in a wooded area. Now, where do we know that's a wooded area that children are being forced to have sex? North Fox Island. That's, you know, just me adding on there uh, to the quote. So anyway, uh, continuing in the quote here, during Bush's interrogation in Flint, he told investigators he engaged in sex with boys because he had been raped in boarding school. He also admitted he had discussed with Green, his friend Green, their shared fantasies about kidnapping a boy, tying him up, and sexually abusing him. Bush said if they were to act on their fantasy and hold a child captive, either he or Green would work at night, the other during the day, so that one of them would always be with the child. Bush told police he was not proud of his sexual problem, but denied having any involvement in Mark Stebbins' case. Bush said, uh, so I look, I end quote there. That is crazy, okay? You're talking about a guy in 19... Before Tim Kane goes missing, he talks about, hey, me and my bud, we really like having sex with kids, and maybe we would uh, maybe we would abduct them and keep them for a little while. I don't know. You know, that's something maybe that we might do. What? This sounds pretty good to me. Sounds pretty good to me. What are you doing in 1976, police 1977, when you got this guy? What's... uh? What's happening? Um, so, you know, he's telling the polygrapher these things, of, of course, which he eventually passes. But they also interview Green at this point. And we'll talk about Green as well. And Chris Green and Christopher Bush both say, hey, I couldn't have done these killings you're accusing me of 
because I was out of town. I only got back in town, you know, I think they say a day after or, or two days after when that happened. Um, but they're actually able to be corroborated that they actually were in town. They were able to do those killings earlier. So if you're Chris Bush uh, and Greg Green, why are you lying about when you came back? Why are you doing these kinds of things, right? So I think that the evidence against uh, especially Chris Bush, because Greg Green rats him out, uh, perhaps is mounting at this point. So Southfield Detective Lauren Doan in a report, this is where it gets even, even crazier, quote, approximately one and a half years ago, this is at the time of the report, uh, Bush said he picked up a young boy at Nine Mile and Woodward in Ferndale, Mark Stebbins' abduction site, and that he dropped him off in Royal Oak near 13 Mile and Woodward Avenue, Jill Robinson's abduction site. He also said he had a little brother in the Big Brother program that he often took to Hartfield's Bowling Alley, where Christine Mihalik's mother worked, and also to the 7-Eleven store, where Christine was abducted. And of course, at this point, Tim King hasn't gone missing yet. And so, that's what we got. So... Williams investigating this in, you know, the modern era is like, hang on, this guy told you that maybe he would abduct kids and keep them for a while, and him and his buddy had plans on how to do that. He also mentioned, and it's reported, it's not like Lauren Doan was doing bad detective work here, it's noted in his report that he names the abduction sites of the victims as places that he would go. Williams, ultimately flabbergasted, is wondering why, again, the heck, this whole thing is just coming to light when he's reading about it all this time later. Well, I've mentioned before, but the Michigan State Police is the first law enforcement agency in the country to establish a state polygrapher unit. So they're really leaning heavily into these polygraphs, and both Chris Bush and Greg Green are administered polygraphs by the Michigan State Police, and they both pass these polygraphs. So they pass the polygraphs, and so uh, from information that I've been able to gather, once you clear someone by, by polygraph, you basically write on the top of their file, hey, cleared by polygraph. So let's say another investigator gets a tip, or they're like, oh, maybe could, this could be the guy. They're going to open that file cabinet, they're going to look at that file, and it's going to say cleared by polygraph. So they're going to be like, oh, they were cleared by polygraph, not a suspect anymore, we're good to go. And so... How many leads for Chris Bush maybe were squashed from these polygraphs? Because as it turns out, Chris Bush did not pass the polygraph. Not even close. It's later reviewed by independent polygrapher experts uh, at the request, I believe, of the police. And not one of them says, hey, you could, you know, with polygraphs, as far as I know, you can say someone passed, you can say results are inconclusive, or you can say really that they failed. And the polygraphers make no bones about it that review this. They say there is no way that this man passed the polygraph that he was given by the Michigan State Police. Right. It was said that he passed. That's correct. But, but, but when you look, when you look back, you can see that, um, Somebody was on the take for that shit, man. There was somebody was somebody got paid off or got pressured to look the other way. Now I've been saying from the beginning, and and as we would find out about the police information bit by bit here, we're talking about at very best, at the very best case scenario, we're talking about a police force that was disorganized, lacked leadership, people who tried to do their jobs and just were 
incompetent to a stunning and unsettling amount. That's at best. And at worst, we're looking at a cover-up. And if you want ammo for your cover-up fuel, you just got some of it, and you're going to get more of it. Remember, we're talking about H. Lee Bush, the GM executive, his family, his power, his influence. Let's get some more information here from Nina. Family was very powerful, so I think that there were there was pressure being applied to not pursue Chris Bush as a sub as a suspect. So it's not just Jay saying it, and it's not just Nina saying it. In my opinion, you can make a solid case based on evidence that this happened. You could say, you could say this. You could say, hey, the polygraph guy, he's just really bad at his job. He, you know, he wasn't on the take for that. He was just bad at his job. Uh, okay, maybe you're going to give him a one-off. Maybe I'll give him a pass. At this point, I don't think we should really be giving them passes, but you could do that. But what about this? There's a piece of paper. I've seen the piece of paper. It lists the charges against Christopher Bush. His friend Greg Green is also implicated on these charges. Uh, you know, they're buds. But this is just the Chris Bush piece of paper. So it's either a typewriter or maybe an early computer dot matrix printing. And so it's typed up the charges against him. And Richard Thompson, the Oakland County Chief Assistant Prosecutor, handwrites on this piece of paper, no deals, R. Thompson. So in the past, Chris Bush, he had a reputation of these criminal sexual conduct issues, I believe to like a lesser extent, or they couldn't prove it as much, or the extent, you know, wasn't known. So he didn't spend a lot of time in jail. He didn't do a lot of those kinds of things. So R. Thompson here on this one, he writes, no deals. The bail for Greg Green and Chris Bush was initially set at $75,000. Only on Christopher Bush's piece of paper that notes this did someone cross off $75,000, which was typewritten, and wrote by hand $1,000. The rich H. Lee Bush, of course, puts this bail up from his son, and Chris Bush walks out of that prison. He ultimately does end up getting a plea deal and two years probation for the criminal sexual conduct that he committed. I don't want to get too graphic here, but the victim of Christopher Bush, one of the victims who pressed these charges, said that the sex that he was forced to have was so painful that it broke all of the blood vessels in his face. Christopher Bush gets a plea deal, two years probation. His friend Greg Green gets life in prison. Now, before Greg Green gets life in prison, he appears to be out on bond. There are conflicting accounts if you look this up. An index card at the jail that he's in does say that he's still in jail. However, based on all the things I've read, Corey Williams even went after someone who worked there and asked, you know, what would this be like? What was it like at the time? And the person said, look, it's only as accurate as someone who fills it out. So if you say they're out on bond, then that's what it says. But if you let them out on bond, you don't update the card, you forget, you can't find it, then it's not going to say that. And Lauren Doan of the Southfield Police notes in his detective notes that, in fact, they did ha ha have record of Greg Green being out on bond during the time that Tim King went missing and, and was killed. So I am more than inclined to believe that Greg Green was out in prison at this time. I, I really have no reason to believe, really, that gives me pause to think that he was still behind bars. So Christopher Bush, Gregory Green are out during the time that Tim King is ultimately murdered. So what's the deal here then? If they're both out, how could they have done it? What's the situation? Well, we've talked about Chris Bush. Who's his friend Greg Green? Greg Green's dubious claim to fame 
is that he was a Little League coach in California, which I absolutely abhor because we're talking about men in power over young boys who are unfortunately, uh, you know, going to do terrible things to them. So Greg Green, he is a Little League coach to young boys. He takes one of his players into the woods and uh, brutally strangles him so badly that he thinks he's dead. And he burns him with his cigarette butt to like see if he's alive or if he's moving. And he does that and he doesn't move. So we're talking about Greg Green strangles this guy, this kid. And that lines up with the Oakland County child killer case. And he actually drops the kid off in the parking lot of the hospital, goes to a nearby payphone, calls the hospital and says, you have a kid on your lawn. Green doesn't know if he's dead or not. The kid's ultimately, thankfully, alive and is able to testify against Greg Green. Now, I've read some things about California's prison system at this time. I guess they're like really trying to reform people or something. It's, it's not something I'm going to get too into. But while you think Greg Green would go away for a long time for this, I guess just the way sentencing and those things are structured, he ultimately isn't. And, and he's really kind of offloaded really to Michigan at uh, one time or another, which puts him in contact with Christopher Bush, where they begin their friendship and all that sort of nasty things that they end up being up to with time. Greg Green lives in Flint at the time of these killings, so it's not super close to Oakland County, but his buddy Christopher Bush lives within a seven-mile radius of all the victims, and they hang out a lot. Uh, so it puts this dynamic duo, perhaps, right in the forefront, right in the crosshairs, ready to commit these killings. So knowing that this is a possibility and knowing that really they've got the MO, they've got what it takes to commit these murders, it would appear, despite never t murdering someone before, they have violent tendencies, they're attracted to boys, the boxes seem to line up. And I'll just go through just some of the evidence here, okay? So um, Chris Bush, he's raping his nephews. He's raping his nephews. And so this is known. And so when reached out to by Williams to investigate, uh, a quote here from Scott Bush, quote, Yeah, there were some boys that had been missing in the paper, and I and um I wanted, if he knew, I was curious to see where they were abducted from, and he took me to a place where he was abducted from and said, he was standing right over there, and I thought that was weird, that he'd know that. Gary Gray says, His words were, that's where he was standing. He physically pointed and said, he was standing right over there. Williams ends up quoting several years later, quote, What always comes back to me, and it blows me away every time, is two weeks after Tim King was found. I mean, the case was all over the news. It's big time news. Two weeks after Tim winds up dead, Chris calls his brother John out in the White Hall and gets him to allow him to take Scott for the weekend. John says yes. Well, for God's sakes, this isn't Chris being a good uncle. He's molesting his nephew. So Chris comes to Birmingham with Scott, and Scott says to him, I'm seeing this news on TV about these abductions. And Chris says, Well, if you want, I'll show you right over where he was taken. And he drives Scott over to Hunter Maple Pharmacy, and they sit in the parking lot, and Chris Bush points and says, He was standing right there. And so Scott tells his mom, his mom was Chris's sister-in-law, and she says to his son, Oh, you're reading into it. Your uncle, he's a good guy. Well, good God, his uncle was molesting him. But that was so compelling to me. He didn't say... He was taken from this store, you know, something he read in the paper. He said Tim was standing right there. Then he takes his 10-year-old nephew home and rapes him. I mean, absolutely appalling by Chris Bush and potentially his friend Greg Green. If you take a look at Greg Green and his 
photo from when he was admitted during at the time for the uh, for the prison to Jackson State Prison, and you take a look at the police sketch that was released. Chris Bush, not a match, but Greg Green. Man, there's a, maybe too many similarities there to ignore. It's also discovered in, during a 2008 police interview, it turns out Greg Green's brother had found a hidden room that Greg Green had built in his house to rape kids and do all those sorts of things. Now, Greg Green's brother supposedly didn't know that at the time, but when he saw that his brother had been arrested for criminal sexual conduct on those charges, the dawning of what that room was used for hit him, and he was sick to his stomach. So if you're looking for a dynamic duo in Chris Bush, Greg Green, to commit these murders, hide these kids where they wouldn't be found, seems like you've got it. He seems to match the sketch depending on who you ask. I asked a lot of people I know. Some people said dead ringer. Some people said not so sure. I'm inclined to think that this thing is pretty close to a match, especially given that it wasn't like the police sketch artist was sketching uh, Green by looking at him. It was based off eyewitness testimony in the dark, poorly lit. I think it's pretty dead ringer as far as I'm concerned, but of course, take a look, judge for yourself. It's also noted in the tips that Greg Green drives a blue Chevy Vega with a white hockey stripe. If you look up a Chevy Vega, it's pretty similar to an AMC Gremlin. Now, this is something that I think is significant. However, I think that this actually might be a red herring, a bit of a misnomer here in this case. I don't think that you can pull an that lead out of the gremlin, proliferate it as you did, and say that that's your lead, that's what you key on, that's what we're going to pull people over for against their rights. I don't know that the gremlin or a Chevy Vega was involved here, but uh, it could have been. I'm going to give you supporting evidence right now that perhaps is to the contrary. When the body was dumped at Bruce Lane, Detective Jack Kalbfleisch of the task force measured the bumper imprint that was left in the snow as the car backed out. He sent it to various manufacturers and turns out it only could have been a Pontiac Tempest or a Le Mans car. It couldn't have been a blue Chevy Vega. And this car is also reportedly seen at I-75 in Big Beaver. Someone notes that they were driving around 4.30 in the morning and this car, this, this gold car, that matches that description was in the shoulder. It was in the shoulder, kind of speeding up, slowing down, speeding up, slowing down, and that was really weird to them. Additionally, additionally, this car uh, is a Pontiac, and it could have been driven by perhaps Green, but it could have been driven by Christopher Bush. His dad works for GM, so it makes sense that he's driving a GM car during these times. Additionally. Chris King, Tim King's brother, reports that he saw a gremlin with a hockey stripe at the abduction site hours after King was abducted when they were looking for him. It later comes out that uh, it at least appears anyway that the owner of that gremlin was at the apartments next door having an affair, and they didn't want to come forward to the police out of fear that they uh, would be outed and caught. Pretty despicable there, if you ask me. So... If you're a local who's followed the case, that's kind of a crazy revelation. Maybe it could have been a blue Chevy Vega, but I'm going to say, or a gremlin. It, I'm going to say it was never a gremlin, ever, 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 ever a gremlin. It was most likely a Pontiac Tempest or Le Mans, and there's an outside shot that multiple cars could have been used. 
perhaps a blue Chevy Vega, but I believe that the blue gremlin that was reportedly seen was actually the blue gremlin in the parking lot that the person was having an affair out of. So that was a bad lead, and perhaps that Vega lead is just a coincidence. So look, it was probably never a gremlin. I'm saying it was never a gremlin, and police knew this. At the time, they knew that it was a Pontiac Tempest or Le Mans. That's the physical evidence that they had tying a car in, but somehow they went all in on this gremlin sort of situation. I'm not saying it couldn't have been a Vega confused as a gremlin, but the fact that there was a gremlin seen there in that same parking lot that matched that description just hours later, I don't think that car was ever involved, and I think the fact that maybe a Vega was similar to a gremlin that could have been at the scene could have been a coincidence. It does seem that, you know, Chris Bush, he could have been driving something like a Pontiac Tempest or a Le Mans. He worked, his dad worked for GM. Makes sense that he's driving a GM car like that around town. So in any case, if you're a local paying attention to this case, I think that's, you know, maybe something new to you that this car was really never a gremlin. I think it's, I'm fairly confident in saying. So look, when you're Williams or the Michigan State Police and you get a hold of this case and you have uh, eyes on this lead, it's time to go interview Greg Green or Chris Bush. The car thing, okay, you know, maybe that's not enough, but look at the other evidence. Look at what we've got going on here with all the things that I've discussed in the podcast already. Greg Green can't be reached anymore. He died in prison in the 90s. But what happened to Chris Bush is even stranger. He supposedly dies by suicide, and just a month later, that task force closes up shop for good. So confident that the killer will never strike again. So confident that the killer is no longer a threat to the community, despite publicly saying that there are no suspects and that there's no evidence. But just a month before that, Christopher Bush is found dead in his home. This is one of the strangest scenes, maybe in the history of crime, I don't know, maybe that's a hyperbolic statement, but you have to judge me by the merits of what I'm about to say. Upon review of the suicide documents, I think it's pretty fair to say that this was a clear murder, and was clear as day, even back in the 70s when this took place. Chris Bush is found dead in his room. There's a long rifle and he's shot right between the eyes. Now look, I suppose if you're sober and you're really dead set on doing this, you could do that. But the toxicology comes back, and Christopher Bush's blood alcohol content is 0.41. Not 0.4, 0.4. This man, I don't know if he can even walk straight. Somehow he gets a really long rifle. Just imagine that. Just imagine a really big rifle. This isn't a pistol in the mouth or on, on your head or something. So he's got to balance this long rifle between his legs because the and the triggers way down there and you gotta line that up and shoot yourself right between the eyes there also isn't any real blood spatter at the scene there's no blood spatter really mentioned anywhere in the documents discussing this scene how is there no blood spatter this guy just supposedly shot himself right between the eyes and his blood's not you know his brains aren't all over the wall and also when they swab his hands there's no gunshot residue on his hands. For a guy who had a blood alcohol content of 0.4, supposedly shot himself right between the eyes even though there's no blood spatter, someone who also has no gunshot residue on their hands, this is starting to look really weird. And this isn't where 
it ends. In his bedroom, the weirdest thing about this scene, just I guess the quirkiest, is that a Volkswagen manual is found in his room, which is weird to me in a, in a couple of ways because, you know, the car competition is fierce. GM's in fierce competition with Volkswagen. Why would he have a Volkswagen manual in his room? It's He's not noted as a car guy or anything like that. Um, so that's kind of odd. And then also, on the wall, there's a pencil sketch of a young boy screaming out in pain. And if you put this sketch next to a picture of Mark Stebbins... That's, I mean, that's the same guy. That's the same kid crying out in pain in a sketch on Christopher Bush's wall as is Mark Stebbins, clear as day. To me, I mean, you have to look for yourself, of course, as you'll look for the Greg Green uh, versus the sketch, but I think that this guy's Mark Stebbins, and Mark Stebbins' own family says that's a sketch of Mark Stebbins uh, in the modern day. That we, now that we know about this scene. There are also ropes found at the scene. The boys especially were found to have been bound with ropes. So this is something as well that draws attention. So all these things, the ropes, the drawing, the rifle, it's, comp- it's confiscated and it's sent to the state police crime lab. But another weird twist, they don't wait for the results from the crime lab and they rule it a suicide in about 24 hours, even a little less than 24 hours. So, what's going on there? Ruled as a suicide despite these issues. Detective Jack Kalbfleisch is quoted years later in a documentary, Children of the Snow. You can watch it. I think it's on Hulu right now. Jack said that Jack, uh, he said that Chris Bush was set to start a new job four days later. He talked about how excited he was to people around him. Why kill yourself? What's the motivation? Why would you do that? The guy doesn't seem depressed. He doesn't seem sad. He doesn't seem like someone who wants to kill himself. There's also no suicide note. Where's the note? If he is so racked with guilt about perhaps committing the Oakland County child killings, there's no note. I'm not saying there ha- you know, look, I'm not saying there has to be one, but you would think maybe if you're so racked by guilt, maybe you would admit to the crimes there at the end. And that's not there either. You could put that uh, uh, narrative, everything related to the Christopher Bush alleged suicide scene, the scene, the narrative report, the diagrammings, the evidence catalogs, all of it. You throw that in front of a 10th grader and they'll tell you, oh, yeah, it right. was murder. I mean, it was. Oh, it was I mean, I don't, it seems to me like it, it's, I don't, I feel weird saying it because I feel like I'm going to be branded strange conspiracy man. But like, you're right. I mean, just look at it. <laughs> just, just look at what is in front of you there. Yeah, it doesn't take a genius, and and not only that, man, but like I say, I say I, I break that down pretty well in in the kill jar. Um, there's a couple of chapters dedicated that they go back and forth with Chris Bush's alleged suicide, but like allegedly he killed himself with this with this rifle that was in his you know in his bedroom, right between the eyes well, too. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that couldn't have happened with him, but. But in that scenario, but the police gave the rifle back to right back to H. Lee, Christopher Bush's dad, H. H. Lee Bush. Yeah. And, so, and he all he had to do was sign a He had to sign an IOU, what they call an IOU. And he wrote on, the, on, on a piece of paper, I will give this back to the Bloomfield Police Department um, within 30 days or something. You know, what I mean, he's like, what? It's like, a, it's like, a, OK, Christopher Bush 
was the main suspect. We didn't know that as the public, but the police knew it because he had already been questioned. He had right. already been questioned, and there was all kinds of weird stuff going on with Christopher Bush. The main suspect that you got at that time on on a on a on a on the biggest murder case the state of Michigan had ever seen, and he commit allegedly commits suicide, and you take that weapon, and you give it to his dad for thirty days. That, and then I don't think like, it's ever. I don't think it ever appears again. If if correct, no man, it wasn't. Yeah, good. that thing never it comes never back. back no, of course not. Of course not. That's right. The murder weapon or the suicide weapon, I suppose, as police are apt to call it, goes back to H. Lee, never to be seen again. Isn't that just so convenient? I mean, it just seems like whether it's Greg Green, whether it's Chris Bush, so much is lining up here. So much is lining up that these guys are the guys, and the police missed him in the 70s, and the police missed him before Tim King was murdered. And I think that that is potentially the truest tragedy here. This guy could have been the Oakland County child killer. Yeah, you didn't catch up to him until the third murder, but then you did. And then you screwed it up in epic proportion, and that led to yet another kid being murdered, who perhaps didn't have to die. So what happened here? Is it a cover-up? Is it, is it, I don't know, I mean, is it just negligence? Is it arrogance by the police thinking that they, they'll get it? I mean, there's quotes from a lot of police officers saying, look, this, we thought this was our guy. We thought this was our guy. And there's a lot of police officers that worked really hard on this case. Listen to this clip from Nina. I was contacted by a couple of young women whose fathers worked these cases. You know, they were officers, they weren't detectives, they were patrolmen and that it ha literally haunted them until they died. And neither of these men lived to a ripe old age. You know, these were guys that went in their 60s or early 70s. And the families believed that the stress of this case, the frustration, the shame contributed to their demise. There's a lot of people, man, busting it to try and get this case solved. But it seems like something might actively be working against them. I'm comfortable saying, I think, I don't, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think that something was going on here. Something weird. Something weird was going on. So how do we know all of this information? How does this come into the light? Oh, that's a story of its own and a story that plays a big factor in this case. As well as, we get our first ever DNA match. Huge. We get a DNA match to something that was found on one of the bodies all those years ago. But that's for next week. I'm Eddie White. This is the Forever Children of Oakland County. And I hope that y'all stick around to see another chapter that gets us maybe one step closer to solving this case. So, like, I have no qualms about saying that back in, back right around the time of this case, you mean 676, 77 is when it was going down. I'm saying 78, they should have they should have put charges on people. We knew enough information back in 78. Well, once you have a DNA result, you can, that's an electronic result that's on your computer. If you have a mitochondrial DNA match, does that mean that it would then also be a match for his brother? Um, yes. Assuming they have the same biological mother, they should have identical mitochondrial DNA. The Forever Children of Oakland County is a podcast produced, written, and done entirely by me, Eddie White, out of a burning desire to see these cases solved and a love for my community. 
This was not free to make, and if you want to support the show, you can do so at anchor.fm slash eddie-white4 slash support. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash E-D-D-I-E dash W-H-I-T-E four slash support.